Hello, you are now in Carl's Orbit, where interesting people from all walks of life are interviewed as to who they are, what they do, and how they do it. Our guest is Dr. Deborah Katz, K-A-T-Z. She's a psychologist, researcher, lecturer, teacher. She is an author of many books, and she's a TV host. Also, she is the president of the International Remote Viewing Association and director, founder of the International School of Clairvoyance. Well, welcome to Carl's Orbit, Dr. Katz. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And, uh, uh, oh, you have something to say? Go ahead. I was just going to say, I like how you start off saying that you have guests from all walks of life. I guess I would qualify as being somewhere in there. <laughs> well, you certainly are. <laughs> no doubt about that. And we're going to find out, as a matter of fact, as we go along and uh, you talk about uh, remote viewing and talk about those two uh, organizations, the uh, School of Clairvoyance and also the International Remote Viewing, because, uh, I mean, that has been, been accessed uh, by the military sometime in the past. But first, let me... Let me say uh, this by asking you the question, uh, uh, what is remote viewing? And some more questions. Uh, and uh, how is it done? And uh, what the practical value is it? Okay, sure, yeah. So remote viewing could be defined as the systematic approach of utilizing your intuitive abilities to access information about the world around us. So it is an intuitive practice uh, using your different intuitive abilities or really ESP, um, but using a combination of clairvoyance, uh, which is seeing visions and clairsentience, which is uh, feeling information and energy and so taking all of that and and doing um, approaches that would be really considered scientific in that and that you're not knowing up front what you're dealing with you don't have information typically uh, in advance you sometimes can but uh, oftentimes you may have no idea what the subject matter is you're just tasked to describe a location or an object or find a missing person or a missing pet or missing wallet or something like that. And then you get information and write it down and then hopefully at some point get verification as to whether or not you were correct about it. And there's lots of different applications. It's oftentimes used for research purposes. Uh, it's used um, for those practical applications, again, finding things, crime solving, sometimes it's used for making predictions about the future and um, a lot of people use it to make stock market predictions or uh, everything from uh, horse racing to football games to even the lotto. Uh, and then um, I'm trying to think of those, those are the major applications, but also think of what would be relevant for you and your audience is there has been quite a few projects that people have done um, using remote viewing to learn about scientific concepts, 
to learn about astronomy, about planets, about viruses and different types of illnesses and, and solutions for those. And so there's a, a lot of people trying to really um, get information in an intuitive way, but also in, in a very uh, careful way. Um, so that's a really, well, how is this different from just anybody using their psychic abilities? And there's certainly a lot of parallels. It's just more the, the manner in which it's carried out. Hmm. Now, now um, I remember you're talking about astronomy being used there. Uh, I remember uh, in a previous conversation when I first contacted you, you were talking about someone who used remote viewing found out about the rings around Jupiter and yes. that was quite interesting because before that time people uh, knew there were rings around Saturn but not Jupiter necessarily and this person somehow through remote viewing was able to do so how did that take place yes well that was Ingo Swan and that was in 1973 so somewhere around 1972 he had already been working with researchers at the American Society for Psychical Research, and they were doing out-of-body experiments to, to, to test whether or not people really could consciously leave their body and then access information. And he had been doing these experiments quite successfully where they would put him onto a bed, strapped him to EEG equipment and other uh, physiological monitoring devices and they would put a shelf above his head with different objects and the shelf would be maybe 10 to 12 feet up and he would have to describe the objects on the shelf with the idea that his consciousness or some aspect of him was leaving and then being able to go and describe what was up there and they found that he was able to do that very well. Now, they noted that there were learning curves for him that sometimes if they put a new kind of object up there, because uh, they, they tested all the different target types, like they would have soda cans or they would have um, pictures on um, notebooks and they would have like letters and numbers sometimes. So um, there would be different target types and then they would notice sometimes his first couple attempts weren't so good but then he'd start improving and really do a phenomenal job describing these things and then from there they they found out he got kind of bored of that and one day he was able to describe he just said I, I want to tune into something interesting I'm gonna look to see what's happening outside this building and he described a very specific picture of a woman holding up a yellow umbrella right. right outside the building and they ran out to see and sure enough she was standing right there and he had been strapped down to the bed for quite a long time at this point so he couldn't have known that so from there they kept expanding outwards so then they sent some researchers over to a museum and he was able to actually track what the researchers were doing at a distance seen that or even that one part of the museum that was supposed to be open was closed that day and the researchers turned around and, and went back and he saw all this happening in real time. So from there, he was recruited into 
what became the government remote viewing programs at Stanford Institute in around 1972. They picked up the research that was already happening at the American Society for Psychical Research, um, but really expanded um, their programs. And so Ingo was one of their initial psychic subjects. And so they continued to test different, um, now sending people out to locations to see if he could describe um, what they were experiencing and and the location itself. And then at one point in 1973, Ingo and another psychic, Carol Sherman, had the idea that they would describe, they wanted to see, can you actually send your consciousness out as far as another planet? So they knew that there was going to be a probe, some kind of satellite probe that would be taking pictures. Um, it would be several months before the pictures came back of Jupiter. Mm. So they said, let's see what we can see about Jupiter, document it, and then see if we can later verify it. And that's where they were surprised to notice that there were these rings. And at first, when they did, when they reported what they were seeing, Um, That data was given to scientists, including Carl Sagan at the time, who looked at their data and said, like, these guys are are off the rockers, you know, there's no rings. And then, sure enough, when the probe came back some time later, they found, in fact, they had given really fantastic descriptions. Mm. And because they did so well in that experiment and others, the government, all different, many, many different agencies and all 40 different governmental and military agencies funded uh, not just a research program, but an operational program that went for almost 25 years uh, um, within the U.S. government. Is it still in progress? No, it was disbanded around 1995 or so. Hmm. And then at that point, the people that had been the the remote viewers and the researchers went out and um, some started remote viewing businesses, some started training. Um, So since then, um, and and around that time, maybe, well now going back 25 years ago, um, some of the key people from those programs founded the International Remote Viewing Association, um, which, so now we're about to have our 25th year anniversary this year. And um, yeah, so now there's several generations of remote viewers because they learn from the original um, team of remote viewers and then they've gone on to teach other people and, and that's where I come in as well. So I received training from some of the military remote viewers and then I eventually went on to start teaching myself. Was anything accomplished in the area of military remote viewing? A lot was accomplished and there there are many books that are excellent that are um, um, document those those accomplishments. Um, they were able to find hostages, to find down airplanes, um, to describe enemy um, submarines, to um, um, describing uh, secret military bases, and there's a lot documented, and then there's also a lot that still remains highly classified. Uh, and uh, what about the application of remote viewing to the area of uh, solving crimes or something yes, of that nature? That's 
that's very much a popular um, application. Uh, um, there are many people that are um, doing remote viewing. Um, there's a few groups. Um, Pam Coronado is someone who, um, she's a former president of the International Remote Viewing Association. Um, she had her own TV show. Um, I forget what it's called now, but she has a company and she has worked with just dozens of police departments. Um, I'm part of a longtime remote viewing group and we're currently working with some different agencies, although my project manager hasn't told us on our current project who is involved, but um, we're working on um, an investigation at the moment. Oh. Um, we. We also um, um, recently with the Idaho student murders, um, we did, um, we gave some input into who um, we, um, dis providing descriptions of the potential perpetrator or the perpetrator, that was the goal was to describe, do a personality and profile and physical profiling and describe um, his whereabouts. And we had really, um, fantastic matches to the um, Brian Kohlberger, who was eventually found for that really um, terrible case. So, um, but there has been, um, I, uh, there's several other um, groups that are also doing investigative work. And so, um, you know, the, this is really for decades, it's not just remote viewers, there's mediums and other psychics that do work with police departments, mm -hmm. um, the, the FBI, other um, agencies. And, you know, a lot of times they just are um, working with non-disclosure agreements and things like that. So there's a lot that you don't hear about, but sometimes you do. And sometimes people will, you know, report on it at conferences or write up articles. Yeah. So there's some really interesting stories that people can read. Um, Irva has a magazine called Aperture Magazine. And Irva, and, by the way, excuse me, Doctor uh, Irva. I want to make sure people understand Irva. I R V A, International Remote Viewing Association. I just want to make sure that they're aware of yeah. the acronym. Okay, thanks. Yes, uh, and if you go to Irva I R V A dot org. Um, there's we put out a magazine twice a year called Aperture Magazine, and and you can read about different uh, crime-solving cases in there. There's also a really great magazine for remote viewing called Eight Martinis State of the Art Remote Viewing Magazine, and you can find that online too. And that also documents <laughs> a lot of cases. Hey, doctor, now that you mention it, and I know it's not this way. But it, it does sound interestingly, interestingly funny that you mentioned eight martinis. I was going to ask, is that how you get into remote viewing? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that term came about because um, Ingo Swan, again, the, the viewer who he's really considered the father of remote viewing, who um, described the rings of Jupiter. Um, he he coined that phrase eight martinis because he said. You know, uh, this it, it never ceases to amaze people involved in this when people get really great hits 
um, of describing something where they had no idea what it was and then it's an excellent match. But he said there's sometimes where the matches are so extraordinary, it just blows your mind and the only way you could deal with it is to go have eight martinis. <laughs> so that's where that came from. And you know, it, it is true and I think that's why some of us who are involved in these topics, we really get obsessed because it is just so, it never ceases to amaze even last night, I, t I teach a remote viewing class once ah. a week, and last night I gave my, it was our first, our first week of class, and so we're at a distance doing it over Zoom, but we don't do video, we just do audio, so we don't have visual cues, oh. and I was having the students tune into an object to see if they could describe it. And at that, I'm staying at my brother's house and he brought me dinner into the room. He brought me a plate of quesadillas. So I took one wedge of the quesadilla triangular wedge and, and so I said to myself, okay, this is gonna be the object that I want them to describe. And I just labeled it object number one and led them through some simple exercises. Well, one of the students comes up with that she was seeing a triangular shaped object hmm. and it reminded her of a slice of pizza. Really? Huh. Yeah. And I was like, well, she didn't say quesadilla, but she did say pizza. Huh. And my brother was like, well, a quesadilla is a Mexican pizza. But you know, that that's the first time I've ever even give this, given the students food like that to describe. So. So yeah, it's like there's always something in, in every class, even with new students, where the the matches that they come up with, where you know there's no way they can know what it is. You know, they're not seeing anything. Yeah. Um, I'm very care. A lot of times, I don't even pick the object till the very last minute. So um, once I say, okay, you guys get started, and then I'll pick it, and then I'll. I'll take a picture of it and then I'll send them that as their feedback once they're done with their session so they could see how they did and, you know, just trying to do it in a careful manner um, so as not to lead them or anything like that. And, yeah. you know, for people that aren't into these topics, they're just like, oh, well, how is that even possible? You know, that just seems so strange. But no, we, we really all have these abilities. It's just a lot of people just don't even try. You know, or they think, well, that's not something I have. You maybe, if they believe in it at all, they're like, well, it just is something someone must have a gift that they're born with. And certainly, some people are more talented than others. But there, this really is a skill that you can learn. And a lot of times, people just never try. You know, and how how hard is that to you know just say to a friend like, oh, but you know, come up with a picture, and I'm going to see if. I can describe it at a distance or, you know, come up with any object and put it in a box and I'll describe it and then we'll see, you know, how well I do. That's It's such an easy task that, you know, kids can do. A lot of times mm. kids are even better than adults initially. Oh, that's an interesting well question. That, that's an interesting yeah. question about the, yeah, children. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, by the way, um, you're talking about many things involving uh, remote viewing. Uh, what about the idea of the connections that exist with remote viewing and other areas of parapsychology, for example, uh, clairvoyance would be the same thing, wouldn't it? And also any other kind of what's known as extrasensory perception, there's a connecting of the dots there. So all these dots all over the place can be connected to a certain extent, I would imagine. 
Well, they're they're very much connected. When you're doing remote viewing, a lot of times your clairvoyance, which I really define as the ability to get information visually or through pictures or images or color, that is in operation when you're doing remote viewing. So again, remote viewing really is it's using all of your psychic abilities, but it talks more about speaking more to the setup, you know, uh, and that's why there's this connection with science, because in, in science, you're really, you're wanting to explore a question and you're needing to set up your protocols in a careful, uh, systematic manner. And then you assess your data and you try to rule out other variables. And that's, that's what happens in remote viewing. So that that's what really would set it apart from just saying like having spontaneous exper- experiences. Um, you know, it, it's both um, whether you're having a spontaneous, like let's say you have a dream about something that's going to happen the next day, or you have a vision of someone who's about to walk in the room. You know, those are your psychic abilities, of course, too. But um, with remote viewing, it's intentionally going after information, at least as we define it, you know, within um, the remote viewing association or community. Um, So, and I know it can be confusing with all these different terms. And sometimes there are people who don't really understand the historical context or scientific context. And so they'll just use the term remote viewing to be synonymous with clairvoyance. And, you know, that's into within from um, stemming from the historical context get sometimes kind of upset that they like to delineate you know the careful practice that they're going through versus just having spontaneous experiences or maybe doing things in a less careful manner which of course you know skeptics over the years um, and sometimes very rightly so you know have criticized the way that um, other psychics or mediums might operate um, because they're, you know, they'll do what's called cold readings where you're just looking at someone and getting information and not to say that, you know, you're not getting valid information or that it's coming from a psychic place, but a lot of times you can't tell, you know, if you're looking at someone, you, you can't distinguish is this coming from an intuitive place or is this, um, you know, coming from my logic or, you know, pre uh, assumptions or clues or things like that. So remote viewing is being done in a manner to really rule all of those things out. Uh, and that's really what separates it. Now, Dr. Katz, uh, the area of uh, remote viewing, uh, uh, is it easier to uh, have some kind of object, some kind of material thing in hand from the area that you're attempting to remote view to, for example, uh, Looking uh, uh, at the scene of a crime, there might be some cloth left over by the perpetrator. Uh, uh, could you remote view more easily by by having something of that sort available, or doesn't it make a difference? Well, I know that there are psychics that work with that, and what you're talking about is psychometry, where you would touch an object and help connect uh-huh. um, with that. Um, In remote viewing, um, I would say we're using psychometry in a different way. So um, not taking hold of an object, 
but instead on a piece of paper, you can write down like whether um, whether it's a target number that's just a random number that's paired with a location or sometimes I'm using latitude longitude coordinates oh. or just like writing down a goal and then um, writing it on a piece of paper and then touching that piece of paper. Um, oh, hold on one second. My, um, I'm at my brother's house and they have this, um, one of those little vacuums that automatically um, goes around the house by itself <laughs> and, cleans, and it just decided yeah. to activate itself and, and start chasing me around the room. <laughs> so I'm moving elsewhere. But um, yeah, so so in remote viewing, you could write down the target number and um, or some indicator on a piece of paper. And then one approach is to just touch the the target number or like say you wanted to describe a person and you had like a first name you could write the name on the paper and then just put your finger on the name and touch the name and then that will stimulate a flow of information so that would be a tactile or or um, approach using psychometry but then one where you don't need to actually have you know something from that person now, how about the idea you had mentioned uh, previously that it's possible to uh, get information about a lottery number or a horse race result or something of that sort uh, before it's over? Uh, would that be uh, connected? I guess it's connected, but would it be one of the same as precognition or is it something a little different? And uh, I wonder how uh, how successful those are. Yes, well, absolutely, it is involving precognition. So anytime you're intentionally trying to get information about how something is going to turn out in the future, that would be precognitive. And so you could use remote viewing to um, describe is a stock trade, is a particular trade going to a particular stock um, let's say by the end of closing time, is it going to go up or is it going to go down? Um, so there's ways that you can use it uh, to for binary options or limited options, such as two football teams, which team is going to win. And there has been quite a few documented studies. These are published in scientific journals of people using remote viewing to earn quite a bit of money, um, including the two um, original directors of the Stanford Research Institute psychoenergetic program that we were talking about before, um, both Russell Targ and Hal Pudoff um, have used remote viewing to um, make money like for charities and also to as part of research project, but then they also um, donated the, donated the money. So we're talking like about $150,000 um, across like 10 or maybe 12 trials or so. There are a lot of people involved in this aspect of remote viewing. There's another um, popular remote viewing group that um, in the past I was quite involved with and it's called the Applied Precognition Project. Um, appliedprecog.com is the website now and and this is actually the subject of my latest book um, Associative Remote Viewing Predicting 
uh, financial, sporting, uh, lotto, and even presidential elections. That's the way too long title of my book. But um, the whole book, it's 700 pages, and it outlines all the different, both formal, published research, and informal research and project, projects that's being done in this area. You know, and of course, it's popular because people do have the ability to lose, to win money, but they have the ability to lose money as well. And I always caution people because yeah, there's so many variables that can get in the way um, and so sometimes people do, um, sometimes people do lose money as well. Mm. And um, so there, there's a lot of complexity to um, making, uh, to the topic of making use of information um, for financial purposes. Oh, so Dr. Katz, let me ask you, let me ask you this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in talking about predicting the future, which is what we're talking about, I would imagine, um, uh, does that mean that the future already exists and we're accessing it, or does it mean that we're creating the future? We're neither one. Well, <laughs> well both of those are theories. Um, some um, there's some data to support each one, um, and I say both. Um, formal data um, in the published literature, but then I'd also say a lot of anecdotal. Um, that these are questions that those in the remote viewing community, um, which is quite large, because in addition to the different organizations um, we I've mentioned in businesses, there's just so much activity right now on Reddit groups and Discord and Facebook groups, and there's really very large. Um, numbering in the like 70 or 80,000 um, people that are part of these um, online social media groups doing um, all different levels from beginner to professional um, pro- products in remote viewing. And so um, I would say that to date, to answer your question, um, or even maybe I'll just say what my own opinion is um, from all of this work is that it does appear that some aspects of the future are already determined so those aspects can be tuned into um, and seem stable but then there does seem to be aspects that are not yet determined and there's just no information about and we really are creating as we go along and in that in that sense we're we're creating our own futures through our thoughts and intentions and, and actions. Oh, that's interesting. So I think both, yeah, yeah I, I really believe that both are at play. Yeah. I have this theory that whenever there are multiple theories or, or controversies about subjects, it's yeah. because there isn't just only one truth. Right, right, right. Usually it's a combination. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, you know, that's what's being discovered. But then people are obsessed with finding the one right answer. Yes, but, yes, yep. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can, I can understand that. Uh, and that would mean that uh, it comes in pieces in terms of, of future time, if that's the yes. case. You know, and so it, it isn't one whole montage of the future in one picture, 
it comes in pieces that build up that montage as time goes on and you move through the future. Huh. Yes, and pieces is a really good dis- descriptor because it yes, it would just be there's moments that are determined, maybe larger moments or or smaller, but it's not like this, you know, entire story of a whole person's life yeah. is already yeah. set. And then pieces is also relevant because whenever we're using our intuitive abilities, whether it's for remote viewing or mediumship or um, doing intuitive readings on people, um, whenever we receive intuitive information, it's also in pieces. It's in it's in slivers. It's in bits. And ah, ah. the the mind seems to access information most of the time in just like in a in just a split second. Yeah. And a lot of times it's very subtle, and so that's also the challenge because um, now I, I won't say it will never happen that a, a cohesive or kind of movie like scenario appears occasionally. It will, but most of the time it's in these bits and pieces, and then and sometimes you know they're they're extremely um, relevant and correct, but then it does take um, quite a bit of. It's kind of like our our minds um, get scattered information. We put it down on the paper, and then we have to rearrange it or or uh, uh, get it back into a cohesive picture that makes sense and yeah. sometimes in assembling those pieces that's where something gets misinterpreted or goes astray right. or right. you know especially when people are analyzing the data and they already have expectations yeah. of it um, that's where you know some things go wrong or some a lot of times you know remote viewers will give information and the person they give it to, like they, if it if it defies their expectation, they just disregard it until later, and then they find later, oh, you know, they were right. Just like getting back to Ingo Swan's um, rings around Jupiter, you know, yeah, the yeah. people uh, until they see the confirmation themselves, they're not going to believe it. And unfortunately, you know, that's not a big deal if it's just about your testing psychic abilities. But it is a big deal if, you know, like, let's say there's a missing person and there's only a window of time before they might perish. And, you know, you would like to think if you are providing information that someone's going to act on it, you know, in time to save their life. And there are um, stories where people, um, investigators, sat on the information and that person did pass away. So... um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of times where psychics or remote viewers or mediums will um, share information, but they're not really giving enough details. You know, they might be giving really good descriptors, but those descriptors could describe many places, and mm-hmm. they're just—it's not enough to get the investigator where they need to be. And that's something that um, you know a lot of psychics. They'll watch um, cases on TV and then they might get impressions or or try to tune in to be helpful and they'll send off a report to a police department and the police department, first of all, doesn't know what to do with it. They're already overwhelmed with um, trying to get uh, just witnesses who really saw something with their physical senses, like sorting all that out. But then also, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, if a... um, 
the, the intuitives are just not providing enough information that they could really go on. And so that's where remote viewing comes in because if you're, for those that are trained and experienced and understand the level of information and description that's needed, um, a lot of times they really can provide a very um, detailed report of a location or a person or something like that. It's it's not just, you know, okay, I, I have, you know, there's a man with a mustache and a black car, you know, that, that may or may not be helpful, you know, but if you could provide 10 more pages of data and, yeah, yeah. and things like that, that's where it starts to become useful. Yeah. And that's not going to happen every time, but it does happen, but, you know, you can, um, you can be assured that if you're working with a trained and experienced remote viewer, that they're at least going to provide you a good amount, uh, a really maybe too much data sometimes. Yeah. Wow, I got a lot more questions that I'd like to ask you, but uh, I'm sure that the people listening in would like to hear maybe a little more about how it's practiced. You mentioned a few things about it initially, but uh, maybe a general kind of uh, explanation of how one can practice that remote viewing well you know there's there's different approaches um to it i i would i would say there's um well it gets complicated because first there's the overall setup of a project which doesn't really involve the intuitive aspects it's it's the project management of it so you know, let's let's say that you had um, a friend that was missing and you came to me and said, could you or your students or other viewers help find this friend? Um, what I would have to do first from a project management standpoint is ask, okay, how are we going to set this up? Are we, do I want to have just one viewer? Do I want to have two viewers? Do I want to tell them anything about this in advance or just assign no, no. a target number? There's all these, um, how do I want to phrase the, what I'd call the undisclosed question, like where where is um, the, the friend, uh, describe the location. And I, I may not tell the viewers that, I might just write that on a piece of paper and give them a number. And then what the viewers would do, again, there's, there's several different approaches, but they would first start to have to um, use some mental, really a lot of it is happening through the imagination and also through some writing techniques. Again, they might write the target number on a piece of paper and touch the target number. They might um, imagine that they're sending themselves to the location, which of course they don't know where the location is, but they've been assigned a location. so. They could say, I'm going to send myself to the location that I'm supposed to describe. I'm going to imagine that I'm putting my feet on the ground and I'm going to look around. What do I see when I put my feet on the ground? So, oh, so you're you know, giving instructions, total... giving instructions to yourself then? Absolutely. Oh. Yes. yes. And then, you know, it's in your imagination, but you're waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Now, you might get a visual, you might hear something, you might feel something. Um, but, you know, you might like notice like, oh, it seems like there's grass around here and there's some rocks and pebbles. Okay, now I'm going to move myself. Uh, what well, I think movement commands are, I call them movement commands, which are basically moving to different perspectives. So I'm going to move myself 
500 feet above the location and look down so I can get oh. a view of the whole area. And then I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to, you know, again, I'm imagining I'm going up there, I'm hovering up, and I'm just going to now clear my mind and see what happens. And let's say I suddenly see like an image of water and like a, a square, um, maybe it looks like a swimming pool. So then I'm going to tell myself, okay, like I'm not sure I might that I know there's a body of water down there, maybe a swimming pool. I, I might be distorting that. I'm going to send myself now down into the water and notice what happens when I get there. And maybe when I get there, you know, I see people swimming around or maybe oh, I see oh. some, a boat or something like that. So it's moving different perspectives and collecting the data going from each perspective and the key is to not go into what's called analytic overlay or to let your mind, which your mind immediately wants to jump in and interfere. Yeah, so, yeah. I was going to ask, uh, what kind of frame of mind would you have to be in? Would it be a kind of meditative sort of state or any other state that well, could be? Meditative can help and there's different practices within the overall practice of remote viewing. Um, one is called extended remote viewing that does put you into to a deeper brainwave pattern starting off. But a lot of viewers don't even meditate too long before a session. The, the key is really learning how to control your mind during the session. Now, now those of us, I'm a longtime meditator. Um, so I would say, you know, meditation does help um, even if you're not always meditating right before a session, which sometimes I don't, sometimes I just jump into it, but there's a collective effect. If you've been meditating for years, you know, you, you can pretty much like go into a deeper state on mm. command. You know, it takes like 30 seconds and you're mm. there. So there, so I think it helps. And um, just as an overall general practice, knowing how to control your mind. Now that doesn't say that doesn't mean that you know there's there's going to be times where your mind is just more active. If you've been thinking a lot during the day, if you've had a stressful day, your mind is already like super energized, and it's going to be harder to to relax it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But within remote viewing training, there's different things you can do to um, to work with the fact that your mind will jump in. It's going to want to, um, it, it'll distort things, it'll turn things into something else, you know. So again, like my example, if you see water and you see something rectangular, you immediately assume it's a swimming pool. But an experienced remote viewer knows that you, that, that could be very, you could be totally wrong. That maybe it, you're, it's, if you see something rectangular and water, a body of water, you're probably right about that. But as to whether or not it's really a swimming pool or maybe it's like a holding tank or maybe it's like a field that's reflective in some way in blue. So after a while, you learn to not trust what you think it is, but instead go and explore it further through your movement. So while you're in the process of uh, going through remote viewing, is always the idea that the mind is throwing other things in like monkey wrenches <laughs> to, to stop you from proceeding for some reason. That's interesting. It's, 
Exactly. And then it's learning how to work with that. It's, it's not like you can just shut it off and overcome it. Uh. Um, but it's learning how to mitigate it so you don't get stuck in all of that. And then usually people that are doing it for a while, they'll, they'll have less and less of that. Like newer students will just, will just get caught up in the mind just wanting to make assessments and and going into misinterpretation. Um, so, you know, that's part of the training and the practice is, is not getting caught up in it so much. There, there's no way to totally avoid it. So it really is that when the information that you don't know about and aren't expecting and surprises you, when that comes up, that's information coming from your subconscious or from someplace out of your conscious awareness, yeah, but then yeah. it rises into your conscious mind enough so you can recognize what you're experiencing and and then yeah it's really you know learning how to work with the internal contents of your mind so dr katz if, if people wanted to uh, contact you how would they do that yes they can get in touch with me through my website at either deborah katz d-e-b-r-a-k-a-t-z.com or you are psychic letter u letter r psychic.com and then if anyone would like to learn about the International Remote Viewing Association they could go to irba.org or just google uh, International Remote Viewing Association Well, thank you Dr. Katz we'll be talking to Dr. Deborah Katz she is the president of the International Remote Viewing Association and the founder and director of the International uh, uh, that would be clairvoyant. School of, School of clairvoyance. That's it. School of clairvoyance. And uh, we thank you, Dr. Katz, for talking about remote viewing, making it uh, clearer than, than we understood it before, of course. And if people are interested, they contact you and continue from there. So we thank you again, Dr. Katz, for, for making it a very interesting kind of interview. Oh, well, thank you. I so much appreciate the, the opportunity to just let people know that this is something they can try themselves and can really enhance their life. So thank you. Yes, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening in. We appreciate that. Uh, and please join us again in the future in Carl's Orbit. Be well. <laughs>